So if you're a village partner, earlier this week you got um, a video and a letter from me um, talking about what feels like the accelerating um, death of the church in America, according to many voices that are out there. Um, maybe you read the letter, maybe you read the video. Chris Delaney called it my hype video. So if you watched it, you would know. I was pretty excited about what we got going on as we get into Acts chapter 1. And that is the reality, that there are a lot of voices that are telling us that the church in America is dying. It's on this sort of trajectory toward death. And in that video or the letter, I reminded you of a 2020 Barna Research Group study that said that one in three professing evangelical Christians were not going to church nor watching church during this COVID season. Might that tell us something about that kind of spiritual life that they have going on in, in their life? I also reminded you uh, of another study that Barna said that um, one in five churches in America would close over the next 18 to 24 months. And I reminded you, we've actually seen a church that we know and love and respect shut its doors in this season and in this place. And, and, I, and I told you that these are hard things to consider. If you're a member of the church and you love the church, these are hard things to hear. I mean, I love the church. I've loved the church since I was a boy. I, I love the church since I was in youth ministry. I've loved the church for a long time, and I still love the church. And these things are hard to hear from some of the voices in the church today. But in the, in the hype video, in the letter, I also remind you that there's actually a lot of things for us to celebrate in, in terms of what God is doing in the life of the church today. I told you about a 2020 Wall Street Journal article that cited a large study that said that that although people think that the church in America seems to be dying, that non-denominational evangelical churches like our church are actually growing in number over the last two decades, and a number of them are helping to multiply churches through church planting at rates that are twice what they were just five years ago. There is a lot of good news in the life of the church. And so while it may feel like the church in America might be dying a slow death, that's sort of been accelerated in this COVID season, the reality is that Jesus is breathing life into his church in new ways. Because that's exactly what he promised to do. It's exactly what he promised to do from the beginning. From the beginning, Jesus said that he would breathe life into the life of his church. At the end of the book of Luke, in chapter 24, as Luke is winding down his first book that he writes, it says in Luke 24, Then he, that is Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. I mean, the prophets like Joel and Ezekiel and Isaiah were always telling God's people that he was going to pour out his spirit, that the promise was going to come, that he was going to give a new kind of life. For hundreds and thousands of years, they believed it. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He, he showed them his place in the, in the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, look, watch. I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power on high. And in his sequel, the book of Acts, which we just opened in chapter 1 this morning here, Luke reminds us no less than I believe it's 56 times he references this, this promise of the Spirit of God. 56 times, beginning in the first five verses here. And this morning we're going to go on to learn four things about the promise that Jesus is referring to. The first ones are in the first few verses, as I mentioned. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, in the first book, O Theophilus, 
I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, the ascension. After he'd given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering, listen, by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. We hear Luke 24 here, don't we? But to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. I believe the first thing we see this morning is this, that the promise of the life-giving presence of the Spirit, it's grounded in the historical life of Jesus. This promise that, that Jesus gives us of, of the coming Spirit and in the place of the Spirit of God in our life, it is grounded in the historical life of Jesus Christ. You see, Luke is a historical theologian who was commissioned by a gospel patron named Theophilus. And this still happens today. It's happened all throughout church history. Matter of fact, I have a good friend who was a, a student in one of my seminary classes many moons ago who started an organization called Gospel Patrons. You might have heard of them. And, and he has chronicled over the case, uh, course of church history the way that, that when God raises up a gospel proclaimer, he always raises up a gospel patron who shares the vision in the heart and comes alongside to resource that patron in incredible ways. And there's a partnership between the proclaimer and the patron. And this started a long time ago. It started with guys like Luke and Theophilus who had a partnership. Luke was a gospel proclaimer writing the book of Acts. Theophilus was a gospel patron commissioning all the interviews and the study and the research that went into this. Luke is a historical theologian who interviewed countless witnesses to the life and ministry of Jesus. And by the way, from what we know of Luke's gospel account, it likely includes Mary, the mother of Jesus. That's a pretty good eyewitness. I mean, the birth account and all the things about Jesus' siblings and, and John the Baptist, his uncle and aunt, and John the Baptist wasn't his uncle and aunt. You get what I mean. His cousin and his uncle and aunt. The disciples, we even believe people like the Roman centurion, likely gave account to Luke as Luke was doing eyewitness accounts and interviews. And, and the point I'm trying to make here is, is simple. Luke was as concerned with his history as he was his theology that his history informed his theology as much as his theology informed his understanding of history. And I believe God is so good to give us Luke's account, Luke's approach in the life and ministry of Jesus because it reminds us that all of the promises of Jesus, listen to me, they're not pie in the sky. The promises of Jesus to you are not ethereal. They're not conceptual. They're not, they're not fanciful. They're not like a fairy tale. They're not like the stuff I read about Eastern religions when I was in college, the Bhagavad Gita, stuff that's just sort of out there. It just seems like a fairy tale. It's fanciful. No, it's history. This is grounded in history. God's promises to us are grounded in actual history, the history that we live in. And I hope that's comforting to you. I hope it's encouraging. I hope it's empowering to you this morning to know that and believe that. And Luke wants us to know that Jesus made good on all of his promises during his, his ministry and his life, including the most significant promise he ever made, that he would rise from death. And again, we have this recorded from eyewitnesses. It's grounded in history. Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells his disciples, we're going to go up to Jerusalem, and everything that's been written in the Son of Man and the prophets is going to be accomplished. He'll be delivered over to the Gentiles. He'll be mocked. He'll be shamefully treated and spat upon. 
And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Jesus told his disciples this was going to happen. And after it did happen, and Jesus did rise, and they came to the tomb, the angel that was at the tomb reminded them, he's not here, he's risen. Remember how he told you this while you were still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. And they remembered his words. When Jesus meets them afterwards in Luke chapter 26, there's a number of accounts of, of kind of how Jesus meets them and where he meets them. In the end of Luke, in chapter 46, it says, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. See, Luke wants to point us to its reality. And now Luke says in his second volume that he, quote, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. I think Luke wants us to know that if Jesus made good on his promise to die and rise, we can trust him for his promise to, to, to give us, to grant us the, the life-giving presence, the, the power, the person of the Holy Spirit in the same way that he would to his disciples. Church, I, I believe that if we say we believe in the resurrection of Jesus from death to life, we have to believe in his promise to give us life through the life-giving power and presence of his spirit. I mean, th this is, this is the, at, the, at the core of our faith. If we believe in the resurrection, and to be Christians, we have to believe in the reality of the resurrection. We, we have to also believe with, I think, proportional faith and trust in, in, the, in the power and the presence of the spirit to breathe and to give life to us as his people, as individuals and as a church. <laughs> Sometimes our tribe is not really known for this. <laughs> You know, we sort of have a biblical theology, you know, sort of like a, a Reformed biblical theology that, 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 that's pretty tidy doctrinally. Sometimes people call people in our tribe the frozen chosen, right? Because, like, we understand the realities of, of what the Scripture says about who we are in Christ, and yet it doesn't move us the way that it should. Why is that? Jesus gave us the Spirit to give us life. Do you believe as much of the life-giving presence of the Spirit of God at work in your life as much as you do in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus? If you're a Christian, you believe in Jesus' life and death and his resurrection. Do you believe in the promise of his Holy Spirit? He promised he would live, he would die, and he would rise. He's also promised he would give you his Spirit. Do you believe in them equally this morning? Paul would go on to say it this way. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Romans 8. 11, if the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now listen, we, we can believe the promise of the life-giving presence of the spirit and that's grounded in the historical life of Jesus. You might say, yeah, Matt, I believe that. I believe the promise of the spirit of God as much as I believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I, I'm in. I believe that. But we can also misunderstand exactly what that promise is all about. And I want to tell you, this is nothing new to God's people. It's nothing new to disciples to, to misunderstand a bit about the promise of the Holy Spirit. And the next few verses show us this. We can believe the promise of the life-giving presence of the Spirit grounded in the historical life of Jesus, but we will see in the next few verses, it's not simply enough to believe. Look at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed in his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And here I think we see the second thing this morning, the second thing we can learn about this promise of the life-giving presence of the Spirit. And it's this, that the promise of the life-giving presence of the Spirit, it can be misunderstood. Have you noticed that? <laughs> it can be misunderstood. Like the disciples misunderstood one important thing about the promise of the Spirit. One important thing they misunderstood, at least one that we can see here. They misunderstood what the promise was for. Lord, at this time where we restore the kingdom to Israel, the disciples believed that the promise of the Spirit would be given to them so that they could have the social and the political power that God had promised his people for so long. And they thought that by receiving the Spirit, they would have the power to rule. But Jesus, Jesus sort of turns it on them as he often does. And he says, no, 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 I'm not giving you the power of the presence of the Spirit so that you have the power to rule. I'm giving it to you so that you would be ruled by something, by someone, that you would be ruled by me. And in the best way possible that your life would be ruled, would be governed by me for your good. And listen, this is, this is a small difference in understanding, but it carries big implications. I mean, misunderstanding the, the life-giving presence of the Spirit of God in a, in a, little, in a small way, it, it has actually big implications, and it does here. And yet, do you notice the grace of Jesus? Do you notice the grace of Jesus in their misunderstanding? I mean, he did not deny their understanding that one day all things would be restored because one day all things will be restored. But he showed them it would be restored in a different way than they were thinking. That it would be restored through his spirit at work in them as his people to be his witnesses, not warriors. Like he, Jesus wasn't looking for warriors that would come to rule politically and socially. He was looking for witnesses. And, and Jesus just turns it on them just a little bit, and that little misunderstanding made a big difference. I think in a similar way, we can believe that Jesus has promised us the life-giving power and presence of his spirit, but we might also misunderstand the purpose for which the spirit was given. Some Christians believe that the, the primary purpose of the Spirit of God was given so that we could understand Scripture, so that we could have divine illumination. And, and listen, people in Reformed circles, they, they believe that wholeheartedly, and they create, and sometimes, unfortunately, a new trinity, right, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scripture, right? That, that's what we can do. Other Christians believe the primary purpose of the promise of the Spirit is to help them to experience spiritual gifts, Charismatic Christians tend to believe this. They, they tend, I think, to misunderstand that a little bit and, and focus too much on the gifts and not enough on the giver, right? There's always this, this slight misunderstanding. Still, other Christians believe the primary purpose of the, the Spirit of God, the presence of the, of the Spirit of God, is, is just to help us obey Jesus' commands. I think evangelical Christians, the, this is where they're at. I just, need, I just need to obey the rules. I need to be a good person. I need to be a good Christian. And if I'm going to do that, I need the Spirit to help me because I can't do it on my own. And I believe Jesus has grace for all of these, I would say misplaced emphasis a bit of the Spirit, much like he did for the disciples here in Acts 1. And I'm saying misplaced for a reason. I'm going to get to it quickly. <laughs> because he wouldn't deny any of these things. All of these things are true. 
that God has given us his spirit to help us to understand the Bible. So we have divine illumination so we can understand the word of God as we read it. God has given us the spirit of God so that, so that we can receive the gifts, his gifts that he's granted to us and so that we can use them and exercise them for the good of his people. God has given us his spirit so that we can obey him. He's the paraclete who comes alongside of us to help us in our struggle, in our time of need, because we need his help in obeying. We cannot obey without the spirit of God empowering our lives. I think Jesus might just give us just a slightly nuanced understanding here this morning. And it's a small difference, but it has big implications. You see, I think the Christians who are closest to, Jesus, to the understanding here that Jesus is talking about, the primary purpose of the promise of the Holy Spirit, is Christians that really emphasize the missionary endeavor of the Christian, the missionary nature of the Christian. So think like Campus Crusade for Christ. Maybe think someone like YWAM. Check out the base before you join one. Disclaimer. You know, I, but, but the missionary endeavor of the church Think of church planting networks that are planting churches. Think of the churches that I said that are planting churches at twice the rate they were just five years ago. Think about those kind of churches that are starting new churches because they know that more, Christ, more unbelievers are reached, more conversions happen through church planting than through just local churches that have been existing for a long time. Like think of the missionary endeavor of the church. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what does Jesus say? And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Christian, would you agree with me? This is where the real life is at. Like, like when we're thinking about the, the church of Jesus Christ lacking some kind of life, it maybe it's because this is what we're lacking. Like, this is where real life is at. When you share your faith with another person and they place their faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ, like, th there's so much life in that. When, when we see the tub, you know, rolled out in front of this stage, you know, and we have our celebration Sunday for our baptisms, and we see people go in the water and come out, and they celebrate the way Jesus has transformed their life, like, that is where it's at. That is where the life is at. This week I was... Um, I was in my backyard with a, a few guys from our church, and we were talking late at night, and we were, we were encouraging one another, and we were, we were praying together. And one of the things we were talking about is, is this idea of, of the missionary nature of the church and evangelism, how the Spirit empowers us. And he was, one guy was saying, I got a couple people in my community group, we've been challenging one another to say, hey, we're going to share the gospel with one person every week, and when we come back together at community group, we're going to share it with each other. And this guy went on to talk about how he had an opportunity to share the gospel with a person. And then at the end, we just decided to pray. To, hey, let's pray that all of us have an opportunity in the next week to do this. And, and lo and behold, <laughs> over, over the last few days, like I have had opportunities to begin to share the gospel with people. And I'm assuming they have too. And we were getting so fired up together about this. And why? Because this is where it's at. Because this is what we were created for. Because this is what Jesus gave us his spirit for. To understand the Bible, yes. To use and express our spiritual gifts, yes. To obey his commands, yes. But I think what we're missing the most is to be his witnesses. And this is what Jesus said the purpose was. To be his witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Have you missed some of this? 
completely missed some of this. I mean, I talked to pastors in churches all over our county and our region and our country, and, and the ones that, 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 that say they're stagnant or they're stuck or they just feel stifled in some way, they can't move, this is why. Do they open the Bible? Yes. Do they have people using their gifts in the church? Yes. Are they trying to disciple one another in community and obey Jesus? Yes. Do they share their faith with others? Not so much. Not so much. This is where the life is at. It's the outworking of all of that. It's the outworking of reading the Bible. It's the outworking of using your spiritual gifts. It's the outworking of obeying Jesus. It's all to that end that we might be witnesses of him, of his life. I'm telling people of his life, death, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. Those are Jesus' words, not mine. I think this is such a big deal. Can I just pause and ask you to bow your head and heart with me for a moment? Would you just bow your head and heart? Would you just quietly to yourself, would you ask the Holy Spirit of God to empower you to be his witness? Would you be so bold as to ask him to give you an opportunity for that this week? Would you ask him to help you when the opportunity arises? We're going to learn a third thing about the promise of the Spirit this morning. We're going to find it in verse 9. Look at it with me. And when he had said these things, they were looking on, and he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And I think the third thing we learned this morning here is this, that the promise of the life-giving presence of the Spirit, it should produce a sense of urgency in us. I mean, do you feel it? It should produce a sense of urgency in us. I'm not saying do you feel it like in this moment. I'm saying do you feel it in the text? Do you feel it in the text of Scripture we just read? Like as a church, we value Scripture. I'm not saying do you feel it in this moment as I'm raising my voice. Do you feel it in the text? Do you feel it right here in Acts chapter 1, the sense of urgency? And in some way, could you blame them for, for gazing up into heaven? Like, if I saw Jesus rising into heaven, like, I would be one gazing, right? I would be standing in awe, and I'm sure you would too. Could you blame them for gazing up? I mean, we can do the same thing. I mean, in that moment, they saw something new and wonderful about Jesus. In all that they had seen, all of the miracles, all of the teaching, they had seen his life, they had seen his death, they had seen his resurrection, and of all these incredible, wonderful, and beautiful things that they've seen about Jesus, they just saw something new. They saw Jesus rising, ascending to the Father, and they're standing there in awe. And doesn't this happen with us? You might have been Christian a long time, and you know all kinds of things about the realities of the gospel, and, and you know all kinds of things about this certain doctrine, and then you learn something about another doctrine that tells you something about the nature and, and the worth of Christ, and you just stand in awe, and it's beautiful. And yet we fix our eyes there. We fix our eyes on that thing. Maybe that like new little doctrinal nuance that we're so concerned about. We fix our eyes on that thing and not necessarily the main thing. And do you know what the main thing is? Being a witness of Jesus Christ 
to the people around us, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so often it's been said of Christians that we can be so heavenly minded that we are no earthly good. We're sitting there gazing, not doing the things that Jesus has asked us to do. And the reality that the verses 9 to 11 show us is that we are living between promises. Did you know that? Like we are living between promises. We are living between the promise of the coming of Jesus and the giving of the Spirit and, 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 and the second coming of Jesus. We, we, are, we are literally living between promises. And we only have so much time between the first promise and the second promise to help other people know the realities of this promise and the person of Jesus Christ. And I think the idea behind the angel... What he was saying is, is you, you shouldn't be wasting time. You shouldn't be wasting one moment. You shouldn't be wasting one minute, much less a day or a year. Some of us have wasted an entire year not sharing our faith with anyone because like anything else, well, you know, COVID, you know. It's amazing. They're staring up at Jesus, ascending into heaven. You would think if they got any margin to stare, stare and to gaze, it would be in this moment. And the angel's like, yeah, no, no. Why, why are you looking at that? You're living between a promise. Don't waste this minute. Don't waste this moment. Go on and get on with it. You know, Luke chapter 19, Jesus tells this parable of the 10 minas. You might remember it. Where there's this master and he, he's going to go away to a far land. And so he gives his servants these minas. Gives one 10, gives one five, gives another one. The point is not necessarily how many each one got. The point is what they did with it. Because if you know the parable, you know that he returns from his journey and the one that had 10 is like, hey, I got it. I doubled it. And you got 10 more. It's like, great. You get 10 cities. And the second one, he gave five. And he said, okay, you got five more. And he said, great. You got five cities. And the other guy said, hey, you know, I knew that you were a shrewd master. I knew you were shrewd. And I, and I knew that, that, that that's the kind, that you have high expectations. And so I was afraid. And so I took my one and I buried it. You know, I, I, I kept it safe. And here it is. You get it back. And you can go home and read Luke 19. And you can see for yourself the things he told that guy. It wasn't good. <laughs> because he does have expectations. He does have expectations of the people he's entrusted with the realities of these things. Not only the reality of these, these things and the truths of them, but the person of the Holy Spirit that indwells us as his people. He's entrusted us with his very person who indwells us and empowers our life and the life of his church. He has expectations and he's right to. I'm just feeling like there's no time to waste. Part of me feels that because now I have to wear glasses when I preach. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I know, like, I know, like, my eyes are wasting away. I wear Ecclesiastes, right? In the, in the, in the reading plan, it's like the, the lights are getting dim, man. You know, it's like it's, it's happening. I, I get it. Maybe you've seen this chart before where, um, where you can actually, you can look at, like, the 90-year life of a, of a person. I'm hoping to live a little longer. My grandpa Kaiser, 101 years old, so I'm hoping I got, you know, more than 90, but I don't know. And you can plot it out on weeks. Have you ever seen this? That's me. That's where I'm at. That's how much life I've lived, and that's how much life I have left. If by God's grace, I live 90 years, right? And, and so you can look at that chart, and you can go like, wow. <laughs> you know, it doesn't, I'm, I'm really far into this thing. 
A friend of mine showed me this a, a couple of years ago. Maybe it's three years ago now with COVID, right? Everything's always a year more. And, um, and when we sat down and we were talking about these realities, and because I was thinking, I only have so many more dinners at home with my daughters who have gone to college, right? And I only have so many times that I can go surfing on a Saturday with my son. And I've got so many more mornings I can take a walk with my wife. And I, so I started going down the list of the things I have. So, and I'm like, whoa, man, I need to be intentional about the things that I'm doing because I only have so much time. We are living between two promises. And God has gifted us, if it's by God's grace, 90 years to live between those two promises. How will you use, you, you use the time you have left? <laughs> That's the time I have left. And you could plot yourself. I know it's hard to see. There's one last thing we can learn this morning about the promise of the Spirit. It's in verses 12 to 14 as we wrap up. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, the Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room. This could be the upper room where a lot of great things happened for Jesus and his disciples. Pretty cool. Where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, not Iscariot. He's not there. He's somewhere else. And these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. <laughs> Jesus' brothers show up now fourth thing we can learn this morning, I think, is this. And lastly, the promise of the life-giving presence of the Spirit, it should be sought obediently and prayerfully. The promise that Jesus gave us of the life-giving power and presence of his Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit that would indwell us and empower us as his people, it should be sought obediently and prayerfully. Then they returned to Jerusalem. They took Jesus at his word. Will you? Will we? And earlier in verse 4, it says, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. Ordered them. Jesus didn't suggest to them. It doesn't even use the word command. Jesus ordered them that they would stay in Jerusalem. And they obeyed him. And I believe Jesus ordered them to do this because Jesus knew from personal experience just how important the life-giving power and the presence of the Spirit of God. Jesus himself had the Spirit of God come and fall on him, anointing him for his ministry. Jesus, fully man and fully God. Jesus, fully man, was empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus knew from personal experience just how important this was, so he ordered them to stay because he knew they needed the Spirit question is, will you and I, will we obey Jesus by seeking the life-giving presence of the Spirit in our life, not just to understand the Bible or to experience spiritual gifts or even to help us just live the kind of Christian life that we imagine we, we can and should and it's possible for us, although all those things are good and right and true and beautiful, but as witnesses for him. I said, well, how, how, do I, how do I do this? I think actually Luke gives us a couple clues. At the end of his first account in Luke 24 and the beginning of his second account in the book of Acts in Acts 1. In Luke 24 it says, And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Fast forward Acts 1, second verse, sequel. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. What did they do to, to seek out the life-giving presence of the Spirit of God in their life? What did they do? They, they, they gave themselves to worship and prayer. 
They're always in the temple worshiping, praising God over those, over those 10 days it was. And they're always in, in the upper room there where, where they likely spent much time together. They're always there praying. They're worshiping and they're praying. They're praying and they're worshiping. And, and in that, it's, it's sort of the fire. The, the, it kind of tends the soil for those things. Acts chapter 13, we'll see eventually that they're worshiping and they're praying. And God says, raise up for me Paul and Barnabas. And they get sent out. I mean, this is the way that it happens among God's people. Okay, so some of you are sitting there saying, hey, hey, wait, wait, wait. Wait, it feels like in this story that the Spirit sought them, that they did not seek the Spirit. I mean, it feels like to me in this story that you don't like seek out the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God seeks out you. And I would say that is theologically very, very true. <laughs> we don't seek God. Paul says there's none that seeks after God on his own. Like, that, that's true. We don't seek after God. He seeks after us. So I say yes and, and no. Like they were not passive in their waiting. Do you get that? They were not passive in their waiting. Jesus says, go and wait. But in their waiting, they are seeking through worship and prayer. They're opening themselves to God. This is what they want. They want the Spirit of God to empower their lives. Is this what we want? How do we approach our worship and our prayer to give ourselves an open posture before God, saying, God, this is what we want. You are what we want. We want you. We want your power, your presence, and your spirit to be at work in us and through us to be your witnesses. Some of you might say, well, even so, what, what, are we, what are we actually waiting for? Look, we're Christians. We already have received the life-giving power and presence of the Spirit of God when we profess faith in Christ. The Spirit of God came into our life. He's an indwelling person, not just a presence or a force. Like, we have the Spirit of Christ that indwells us as Christians. So what are we waiting for? Good question. I think we're waiting to be renewed anew and afresh. Because the New Testament says that even though we've received the Spirit, we can grieve the Spirit. That's why in Ephesians 4, Paul says, do not grieve the Spirit of Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We can not only grieve the Spirit, we could quench the Spirit. Paul tells the Thessalonians, do not quench the Spirit. Do not grieve the Spirit through sin. And do not quench the Spirit through unconfessed sin and a lack of repentance and a hard heart toward God. You know, in my hype video, I guess it was, <laughs> I told you, don't miss a week of this sermon series. If, if you've been struggling looking at the reality of the church in America and you feel like it's dying and, and you want to hear hope from what Scripture says, about the way Jesus brings life to his church. Don't miss a morning, but be here. Let's talk about these things. But I also said, if you're, if you're longing for the, the power, the presence of the Spirit of God to be at work in your life in new and fresh ways, then, then, then be here. Don't miss a week of this because this is what we're going to be talking about. And it starts with this morning, talking about this reality that, that we may have sin that is unconfessed, ways that we have grieved the Spirit of God. God forbid we quench His Spirit in our life by unconfessed and unrepentant sin. And so if you're feeling this morning like you're lacking this, this spiritual vitality that we're talking about, 
Perhaps there's something you need to confess. And before we share communion and before you go to the back and, and remember Jesus' body that was given for you and his blood that was shed for you as we're singing songs, why don't, why don't you bow your head and heart and take a moment to, to ask him those things. And if you already know what it is to confess those things to him and to ask him to fill you with his spirit in a new and fresh way. And he will because he's lived and he's died and he's risen as he promised to have the authority and the power to give you the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. And that's the good news this morning, that God promised that Jesus would live and die and rise so we can trust him for the promise that he will bring us life by his spirit. I hope you believe that, and I hope it's good news for you this morning. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we want to say this morning that we believe. We believe that you've lived. We believe that you've died. We believe that you've risen from death. We believe that you've ascended to the Father. We believe that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to you. We believe you for your promise of your Holy Spirit. We believe you when you say that you're going to grant us, gift us your Holy Spirit to indwell us, to empower us, to enable us, to enliven us spiritually. We believe these things. Lord, if there's anything that is unconfessed that we need to bring before you, bring it to light this morning in this moment. If there's anything that's unrepentant, Lord, would you bring it to light in this moment this morning? We want to be filled anew and afresh. We thank you for your promises. We thank you that you promise that when we confess that you forgive, if we confess our sins, he is faithful, he is righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. And you're faithful to forgive us and you're faithful to fill us with your spirit. And we pray that you would. We pray that you would do it in your name. We pray it for your sake, Jesus. Amen.